0: We have the opportunity tonight to band together as brothers and sisters in Christ as we open God's Word together to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As you know from the previous four parts of this little mini-series called Do Not Be Deceived by the coming day of the Lord. We are in the process of finishing up this series that is part five, which we are doing as the culmination of this message series on the day of the Lord, and we find ourselves in part five. We learned in the previous parts so many things about What will happen in the end of the age? Now, Paul, of course, tantalizes us with some details, but leaves other things for other ages and other times and other epics, other preachers, Bible writers from across the New Testament give us other information, but we need to focus our hearts and the attention of ourselves together in this particular text of Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and it is this, Second Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, referring to the day of the Lord, this terrible, awful day of judgment, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember, Paul says, that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now. So that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion, so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, as I have been saying, this is a very sober word, a very somber passage of Scripture, because it's talking about things that we've discussed, like the rebellion, the rebelling of mankind, and the rebel. Clearly, that rebellion is a rebellion of all manner of unbelieving persons at the end of the age, that is, the world as we know it, and there's going to be a massive rebelling against God, against Jesus Christ, against the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and there will be a rebel who leads the parade of rebellion, and that is clearly shown to us in verse 3. The man of lawlessness is revealed, it says, the son of destruction, the son who attempts To provide destruction against the world, but also one who is going to receive himself destruction at the end of his time. And then verse 4, as I just read to you, is what I call the blasphemy and the blasphemer. This is the Antichrist. This is the one who is that man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. And according to verse 4... He opposes, and that, of course, means he opposes God and exalts himself as over against God and over against every so-called God or object of worship. So he exalts himself to the place where he's the king of everything, he's the God of everything, or so he thinks, and he even takes his seat, verse 4 says, in the temple of God, Proclaiming himself to be God. It is, of course, a most audacious claim, but he does make it. It will happen. It will happen at the end of the world as we know it, and when he does, he's committed the ultimate blasphemy. And then in verse 5, we saw in our series the teaching and the teacher. That's Paul, ever the teacher, I've been saying. Because he says to the Thessalonians, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? I continually told you these things. Why? Because he's trying to comfort them. Remember, the whole context of this passage is the uneasiness, the scared and heavy-hearted Thessalonians because they've been told, whether it was by a false teacher or a false prophet or a false letter, and we'll even find out tonight in passages that we'll study, that there are false signs and wonders. And perhaps that's the reason why they shudder in fear, because they assume that possibly these things are beginning to take place. And Paul says, no, no, I've been telling you, I've been teaching you, I've been warning you to remember that these things cannot be happening right now because the rebellion must come first. And Paul obviously is implying by that 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 kind of rebellion, that kind of worldwide conflagration is not yet here. And then he says there's another reason, does Paul, that this can't be that time because of verses 6 and 7. I've called it the restraining and the restrainer the restraining and the restrainer. Verses 6 and 7 clearly tell us that there are those who believe that possibly this is happening in their own time, or at least they're being challenged to believe that. And it simply is not the case. Why? Because there's a person who's restraining the Antichrist. Yes, it's true that there are antichrists in the world. Yes, it's true that there is lawlessness in the world. The mystery of lawlessness, this time when it's all going to break open and break apart, is not here, and the restrainer who I said to you in that last message was and is, I believe, Michael the archangel, and he's restraining undoubtedly now and will continue to restrain until he is loosened from that responsibility by God himself, sovereignly. And when that restraining process is over, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, will break out into all kinds of thievery and villainy until the whole world seemingly is in his grasp. And then the Lord Jesus Christ comes to the earth with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus has to be the one who makes the real appearing. And when He does, according to verse 8, we see the killing and the killer. Verse 8 says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus... As he comes to this earth, as he sets foot on the Mount of Olives, will kill the killer. He'll kill the Antichrist, the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness. And how will he do it? Verse 8 says, with the breath of his mouth. And he'll bring to nothing this Antichrist by the appearance of his coming. That is power obliterating power. Christ is the supreme power, and just by the breath of his mouth, he destroys the one who wants to destroy, the son of destruction. In other words, that's a fulfilling prophecy, isn't it? The son of destruction, if that means I'm the son of, that means I'm a part of destruction, that means I'm a part of it even when I myself will be ultimately destroyed, and this is that, verse 8, Jesus will destroy him, fulfilling Such a moniker. And then tonight, we have verses 9 to 12. And verses 9 and 10 are for us the deceiving and the deceiver. The deceiving and the deceiver. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is an amazing portion of Scripture and. It's one that I really, really want to delve into tonight with you because this is something that Christians certainly want to know about, and it is a fascination of many, if not most, and the Scripture tells us what it is. Verses 9 and 10 of Second Thessalonians 2, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Now, isn't it most interesting that while Paul has just written about the appearance of Christ's coming, and I mentioned that in the earlier message this morning, that there's another coming? The lawless one is going to be revealed, the Bible says. He's going to be having His own coming. And, of course, He'll have also His comeuppance. But the real appearing, the powerful appearing, the grand appearing will be Jesus Christ killing the Antichrist by the sheer breath of His mouth. And who is God really battling with? Well, it is, of course, the Antichrist. It is, of course, Jesus killing him, but the one behind him is revealed here in verses 9 and 10, right? The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Satan is very, very powerful. But he's not all powerful. He's very, very strong but he's not omni strength. He has weaknesses. Even Jesus himself said in the gospel accounts that a a kingdom divided against itself shall not stand. And he was answering the question because there was a question that was being asked about Satan and his wiles and his demon activities and and somebody was asking a question, and Jesus was responding and, uh, responding and saying, look, if you're asking me the answer to this, why does it appear as though falsehoods and false teachers and satanic activity seems to be going against falsehood and demonic activity? Uh, why are they fighting against each other? And of course, the answer is because they're so wicked, they're so diabolical, they're so demonic that at times they even go after each other. What kind of? kingdom can stand like that and wouldn't you suppose that at the end of the age when all of this is at its fever pitch that there's going to be more satanic activity than in the history of the world it's going to happen you know there was a lot of demonic activity going on when jesus was walking the earth in his three three and a half year ministry right they were contending against him. They were asking him to heal disease and sickness and demonic possession, and he was doing so. Sometimes he would do it all day and into the evening, and he was so tired because he'd done it all day. He'd used an immense amount of power, and as the God-man, he was sleeping one time so soundly in the boat, he didn't even realize because, because of his sleep that the boat was sinking in a storm, Right? He was constantly battling the kingdom of darkness. Well, guess what's going to happen then at the end of the age? And how does Satan plan to do his dastardly work? Well, here's what Paul says. According to him, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with, and are you ready? All power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception. You see the two words there, all? All power and all wicked deception. There's a lot of activity in the word all. I don't want to be around for that. I pray and believe from Scripture itself that I won't be around for that, even if I was alive. None of us want to go through this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you don't want to be there. You don't want to see all power and false signs and wonders and all wicked deception. Brutal. It's going to be almost beyond description. And add to that verse 11, which we'll get to shortly... God Himself, according to Paul, there in verse 11, sends them a strong delusion. Who's the them? To unbelievers, that is, those who are choosing to believe what is false through these devilish, powerful, yet false signs and wonders. This is going to be something on a grand scale like never before. And you and I might be tempted to say, i just like to see it. I want to be I want to be a distance away from it, but I'd like to see it. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't want to see this. This is, the, this is the implosion of mankind. I mean, the idea of Satan's power, I want to delve into that a little bit. The idea of Satan's power is explained by that phrase, all power which I think best is interpreted this way, all power, maybe we could say all power, colon, through false signs and wonders. In other words, the signs and the wonders that are being referred to there is the explanation of what he means by all power. It's not three things, power, signs, and wonders, it's the signs and wonders by the activity or instrumentality of all power. That is, all satanic power. Not all of the power in the universe, not omnipresence and omnipotence of an all-seeing, all-knowing, and all-powerful God, but Satan is who he is. He's the God of this world, and he does have immense power, but not all power but of all the power that he has, he's using it at this day. Can you imagine that? Of all the things he could do, he's going to try to do right then. Why? Because he knows he's near the end. These are powers. It says, signs and wonders. And don't forget the word which modifies them, false signs and wonders. False. You say, well, what do you mean false? You mean like trickery, chicanery, black magic, a kind of uh, um, sleight of hand? No. No, I think these these are real, powerful events, whatever they are, both signs and wonders, but they are satanic at its core, And because he's a liar from the beginning, the Bible says, they are then therefore false signs and powers. Not made up. They're real powers, real signs, real wonders. You don't try to wickedly deceive people by sleight of hand. They're going to not be impressed most of the time. But if you have real signs and real wonders from the false one, the liar himself, and he is that powerful, not as powerful as God, but he is powerful, one of the most powerful beings in the universe, wickedly so, I grant you, but he will be doing things that will actually effectively deceive the world. That's how good he is. And you know, I kept thinking about that in my mind. Where where do you go in Scripture? Where do you where do you cross-reference in Scripture the idea of Satan's cunning? Well, certainly you could go to the first book of the Bible, right? Genesis. But that was kind of a, it was kind of a verbal repartee between Adam and Eve and, and the serpent, right? Where would you see not a display of uh, sort of verbal fisticuffs, verbal deception? Well, how about Job? How about Job? Remember the first chapter of Job? Do you remember that Satan went to God to ask permission to afflict Job? And boy, did he afflict him. You might see a little bit of what's going on here or what may be hinted at here by reading the first two chapters of Job and seeing how Satan afflicted him terribly. Boyle's some kinds of physical ailments and maladies that caused him to take potsherd, uh, you know, like, uh, like a kind of raking motion with a, with a hard-edged, where he was trying to just sort of shave off, if he could, the, the, the porous boils on his body. And you remember, it even says in Job, we don't have time to read it, but there were storms storms that came through, killed all the children, the livestock. So apparently, Satan has the ability, when God allows it, to actually create physical phenomenon, environmentally, atmospherically, where there is such damage that people are killed. You remember the one requirement God told him that you can't do? You can't kill him which means that if God had allowed him to do such a thing, Job would be dead. His children died, but God said, you can do this and that and the other, but you cannot take his life. And there were more things. We don't have time to develop it, but that's just one example of the idea of the power of the audacity of the deeds of the diabolos the diabolical one. And by the way, please don't lose sight of the deception of these signs and wonders from the evil one. What does it say in there, in that text? And with all, verse 10, wicked deception. Now it's very interesting to me as the ESV translates this wicked deception. For my, for my thinking, all deception is wicked. That's, that's the heart of deception. So, so why is this sort of adjectivally giving us something that's beyond the word description? I mean, be, beyond the word deception. Well, it's I suggest a way of saying this is the worst deception of deceptions. This is the kind of all. Wicked deception of all wicked deceptions. All wicked deception. So you've got false signs and wonders going on. You have all wicked deception going on. And you and I would say to ourselves, I don't need any more than that. And there's more. There's more. It's the false signs and the false wonders and the wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So it's not just the, the sense of all that Satan is doing against them, but he's doing it while they're perishing. I mean, you want to talk about piling on. This is, this is a kind of wickedness that knows no bounds. Now, if you're like me, you're saying, well, if it's not like hocus pocus, if it's not black magic, if it's not chicanery, if it's not sleight of hand, if it's real signs and wonders, though false because they come from the false one, but they're intended to deceive and wickedly so, and it does for those who are already perishing, how can anybody discern the difference then between that and real signs and real wonders, supernatural ones, righteous ones, holy ones. I mean, where, where's, where's the level, where's the line between the discernment of watching something that appears so supernatural before your eyes, and you and I are saying, I can't tell the difference. What, what's, what's going on? I mean, if there's a super sign, a supernatural sign or a wonder, how do I know the difference? Well, perhaps that's at least one reason, though maybe a minor one, how we discern what we read in the Exodus account, right? You remember when Moses came and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh was continuing to say no, and there were how many plagues? Ten of them. And there was 10 on God's side, and there was 10 on Pharaoh's side, with all of the, the chicaneries, all of the magicians, uh, all of those who were at Pharaoh's bidding to try to reduplicate or replicate all of those signs. Oh, we can do that. And you remember the first one? The first one, which was sort of like a preview of coming attractions, was Moses' staff, right? And threw it down, and what did it turn into? snake and and then the the hocus pocus guys on pharaoh 's side said oh that 's easy, we can do that, and they threw down their staff and and uh, see, we can do that and Of course, some people say, and i 've been asked that question before, was that some way that a particular snake that they used in that way, and they sort of uh, were able to immobilize the snake and sort of touch him in a certain direction and and he would just go completely prone on the ground, not moving, not wiggling. Uh, Was there something like that that you could explain on a natural level, perhaps? But perhaps they were also being led by Satan. Perhaps so. I think probably so. So you might see a little bit of insight there, but that being the case, or that being at least possible, what's happening at the end of the age? All of these false signs and wonders, I mean, if I'm watching those and if I'm there on that day and if I'm sort of on the fence, maybe maybe I'm seeing that this is not so good of a guy and uh, maybe he goes in there and he says in temple worship, I'm the God of the universe, worship me, and maybe you're not so persuaded, but then he turns around and by the activity of Satan, he does something that is so grand that you say, Perhaps he is God. Perhaps this is from the Lord. Perhaps this guy is, in fact, a a new kind of God-man. Perhaps we ought to worship him. I mean, I'm convinced that something like that must be occurring at that time because the signs and wonders, though false, because they come from the false one, look absolutely real. So how do you discern? How do you know? Well, I would say it's not just the signs and the wonders you have to try to discern. Are they from God or from Satan? It's what I think they are designed to produce. And in this case, it's designed to produce what? Deception. Deception. What about, what about God and what about Moses and uh, what about Jesus and what about Elijah and Elisha? What about this proliferation of all kinds of signs and wonders from the good side, not the bad side? Well, I think that's what we ought to delve into a little bit. Turning your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12.12, a lot of people might be asking, how do you discern this? Not necessarily in this latter-day phenomenon, the end of the world, but perhaps just everyday stuff. Who, who's true? Who's false? Who's in? Who's out? Who's good? Who's bad? This is, this is a practical reality for the local church of our day, isn't it? Someone comes in, someone says, I can heal. I can perform miracles. <coughs> I, can, I can raise the dead. I was once preaching in my previous church, the Bible Church of Little Rock, and I was I was doing the latter part of the Gospel of Mark. And I was in a section of Mark's Gospel. You don't have to turn there, but it's a section that appears in brackets. And it appears in brackets because usually you'll have a little marginal note that might say something as it does in the latter part of the book of Mark, right after the, uh, the scene in which Jesus is being entombed, and then resurrected. And the very last line of Mark 16:8, if it ends indeed right there, is, "...and they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid." And then you have this marginal note that says, in brackets, "...some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 9 to 20 of Mark 16." So I'm finishing my exposition of the Gospel of Mark. And as I'm finishing, I'm giving some reasons why I think that the right ending of Mark's Gospel is, in fact, verse 8. And that I was agreeing that verses 9 to 20 are not a part of the original portion of Holy Scripture. And one of the reasons I was giving because of this particular text was that there was a phrase in this disputed text that says this, verse 16, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then this, and these signs will, notice that phrase, will accompany those who believe. So if anybody's saved on this earth, this is what this text is saying and the signs of these saved persons will be accompanied by this. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. That's what it says. And it's bracketed, but it's in your Bible. Sometimes it's in a different place, sometimes it's in the text, but then you have a little footnote, but it's in there, it's disputed, and one of my answers was why I don't believe that this is the right ending of Mark's gospel, and verse 8 is the right ending, is because that is simply not true that these signs will accompany those who believe. That wasn't my experience. Any show of hands, anybody in your experience picked up any deadly Snakes, any drinking of poison, not harmed you, and that was a part of your conversion experience? I don't see any hand up. So I was just making that case. That was one of about, I think, five reasons that I, I said that's why I think this ending is not the right ending to Mark's gospel. And no sooner had I given that particular point, but someone in the congregation immediately stood up and said, You're a heretic! You don't know what you're talking about! You don't love the Bible! And I said... Oh, it's interesting, never had that experience before. It's pretty novel. So I just let him say what he was going to say, and he sat back down, and I'd never seen the man before, and so I just kept on preaching. Don't ever want to miss an opportunity just to keep on preaching. So I just continued on with my reasons, and I don't know, maybe a few minutes later, another guy from another part of the church service stood up and said the same thing. You're a heretic! You don't believe the Bible? And then I, of course, started saying to myself, something's not quite right here. Something's going on. This is a very different situation. And I had a couple deacons who were sitting on the front row, and they were kind of moving just ever so slightly off their seat, like, you want me to go get him? You want me to go get him? And so I just sort of calmed everybody down, and I said, look, it's obvious that in our service today we have a couple of men. I don't know who you are. You've said some things and now I want to say some things. And so I just diverted completely and totally from the Gospel of Mark. And I said, Look, the signs and wonders that you're talking about in what they were saying against me is something that you need to understand better. And so I said, Let's go to Second Corinthians twelve twelve. Just on the fly, just started teaching on something completely different than what I was preaching on, and here it is, Second Corinthians twelve twelve. And notice Paul says, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. You know why Paul's saying that? If you study the context of 2 Corinthians, you know this, that there were some men in the church at Corinth who were not only downgrading Paul And they were not only disputing with him, they were not only claiming that he himself was actually the false apostle, and that they were the true apostles. Some commentators have even called them the super-apostles because that's what they were claiming about themselves. And undoubtedly, part of what's going on in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 about some of these miraculous gifts and signs that were going on in Corinth, because remember, the Bible hadn't been completed yet. The canon of Scripture was not yet full. And so there were signs and wonders going on in the first century church, and Corinth was one of those places. And they were very gifted. They were very gifted multi-gifted, and some of them were performing such signs. And as they were doing so, guess what? There were some men coming into the church who were false apostles, claiming that Paul himself was one and that they were the true. And so Paul says, I'm here to tell you the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, speaking about himself, and he did so with utmost patience. And as you read this section, not only chapter 12, but the latter section of this second letter to the Corinthians, you find that signs and wonders are coming from someone who is teaching the truth, and they're also living the truth. And that's documented time and time and time again. And then when you get to other places like the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, and you find Paul going after some of these guys who are reported or reputed to be the real deal, and then he starts to call names and he says, Hymenaeus and Alexander and Philetus. Look, You have to be warned against them because here's what they do, and Paul will immediately go to two things. It is what they say and how they live. So you know one of the ways to discern these signs and wonders of the age? They did it in the New Testament, and in the days to come, at the end of the age, at the terrible, awful day of the Lord, if someone's doing signs and wonders including this antichrist figure, he's doing it for what he can get, and he's doing it for the self-exaltation of his life. You know it's not true. You can discern this. You say, well, but we're not there. If the church isn't there, then the whole world is going to be deceived, and that's precisely what happens, except for some. And praise God, even in that tribulation time, there will be those for whom God is elected to salvation and they will be saved out of such horrific damage to the whole world. Aren't you encouraged about that? That even then, God has His elect and He will bring them to Himself. And the rest of them? They are totally deceived and want to be. That's the difference. Here's another. Look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is is how you can know about how these false are to be discerned between the true. Acts chapter 2. This is is the moniker of Jesus' own ministry. Acts chapter 2. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. This is Peter's preaching. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders, and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised Him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. If you read that sermon, though it's not the whole sermon, it's just a a sample of that sermon, you'll hear righteousness and holiness of the truth, you'll hear Peter talking to them about salvation and about Jesus Christ, you'll hear that Peter says you've got to put away your wickedness, and then you've got this tie-in with the idea of the life of a man and the doctrine of the man. And so you can discern that those who have False signs and false wonders. It's false because you look at their doctrine and you look at their life and you can discern that they are not truly from God. That's how you know. It says in Hebrews 2 4 that Jesus was brought into this world in part to do two things to do signs, wonders, mighty works. And at the end of chapter 2 in Hebrews 2, it says, And one of the reasons he came was also to destroy the destroyer, to destroy the works of the devil. It says that in 1 John as well. So that's in part, not all of it, but in part, how you can always be on guard and always be on the lookout for false teachers, false prophets, false letters, and now false signs and wonders because they're all powerfully designed to deceive those who are not tethered to the truth. And Jesus tells us. It's not like you and I have to be discerning forever and only on our own wits, by our own designs, and by our own need to discern. That's a part of it, but we've also been warned time and time and time again. Do you remember what we read this morning? Look back at it. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Remember what Jesus himself said. He said in chapter 24, verse 24, that's easy to remember, Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. There it is. But notice the life and the person. They're false. He's a false Christ. He's a false prophet. They're performing great signs and wonders And then what's the next phrase? So as to lead astray. And he says, if possible, even the elect. No wonder the days are cut short. Because God is all about saving and protecting the elect. The others, they're going to fall to the false Christ, they're going to be seduced by the false prophets. And they're going to say the signs and wonders must be true, and they fall right into his plans. Do you know that that happens also according to the book of Revelation? Turn there, Revelation chapter 13. This is is what's going to happen, and it's going to happen in spades. It's going to happen regularly and with profusion of signs and wonders and so-called miracles, but they're all false, but they're designed to do something. And what are they designed to do? They are designed to do the things that they're supposed to do, deceive. And in Revelation chapter 13, look at verse 13. That's another easy thing to remember, Revelation 13, 13. Here's what the beast Go back up to verse 11, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. And then notice verse 13, It performs great signs even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. You see the deception? Telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. There's a lot of stuff going on. And is it no wonder that the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. But now remember, because Paul is describing this terrible, awful day of the Lord, the Thessalonians won't be a part of it. We won't be a part of it. The wicked deception that is going to be extant in those days is part and parcel of those who, according to Paul here in verse 10, is for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. This passage that we're studying in this series is in the context of the day of the Lord's wrath upon the worldwide judgment of those who refuse to love the truth. Can it be more clearer than that? I don't think so. They refuse to love the truth. You know, some people say, well, but you got to give them a break because they're deceived. I mean, come on. They're deceived because this Antichrist is so adept at doing this, and the false signs and wonders are so believable, Maybe even I could be deceived about it because it seems so real. Don't forget, doctrine and life. And their doctrine is to believe these things because their life is, I refuse to love the truth. I refuse it. That's a strong word. I refuse. And I read you that Matthew 24 Jesus' own use of the word, elect, in an eschatological passage, passage about the end times. Jesus says, I'm all about election and reprobation. Now, you've probably heard the election term, right? People are elect. God opens their eyes. Everybody's a sinner. Nobody deserves heaven. Everybody deserves hell. But by God's grace... He chooses, by his own sovereign goodness, to display that goodness by opening the minds and hearts of people who are undeserving and deserving of hell and deserving to remain in this condition of refusing to love the truth. But he opens their eyes to realize that if they would repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they could be and will be saved. And he elects them for the purpose of of the praise of Almighty God because of that salvation. That's election. Now, there's more to that, but that's the essence of it. And when does that happen? The Bible says from eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1. The plan has been the plan forever and a day. But what about the other side? I mean, the other side is, well, okay, if God, with this doctrine of election that you keep talking about, is opening the eyes of these people who don't deserve it and when their eyes are open, they repent and believe in the gospel and that fruition of election issues itself in faith and repentance and they are believing and repenting. So why doesn't God just do that with everyone? That's that's the common understanding or the common complaint about the doctrine of election. Well, if, if God is wanting to do the right thing, the best thing, the most optimum thing, then he ought to try to elect everybody. And by the way, don't use that phrase, he ought to try to. Everything God does, he doesn't try, he does. He doesn't try anything, he does everything. So, he doesn't try and then he's unsuccessful. He doesn't make an attempt and it it didn't come to pass. God has a group of people We could call them the bride, the church, the believers, the people of God, whatever moniker you want to give them. It's because they were as hell-deserving as everybody else who will be in hell for all eternity, and God, in His own plan, decided by an act of His own will that there would be an election and that there would also be what is called by theologians reprobation. We, We might tend to call it the reprobates. Right? That may be more familiar to you. The reprobate. So it's election and reprobation. But I want you to know something. That even though 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. We love the brothers. We love brothers and sisters in Christ because he first loved us. We can't love our neighbors as ourselves unless he first loves us and shows us that we can love that way because He first loved us. He gave His Son on the cross for sinners like us so that we can learn not only that God loved us by first loving us, but also that we can love the brethren because He first loved us and He gives us the capacity to love our brothers. But what about those who don't love their brothers? What about those who don't love the truth? What about those who have nothing but pleasure in unrighteousness? We're right here in this text. I can't skirt this. It's in the Bible. It's right here. And what does it say? It says to us very clearly that taking Jesus' cue about Matthew 24 and for the sake of the elect, these days are cut short, he says it's for the sake of the elect, and now we've got a reprobation passage. And here it is. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved who did not believe the truth, verse 12, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here we are. This is is where it is. You have to deal with it. It's there. It's there in the Bible. You have to say, okay, what does this mean? And what what I tell people, what I teach people, is that there's not a complete and beautiful symmetry of the doctrines of election and reprobation. They are ah- symmetrical. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, symmetry. Be like like the idea that if one thing does one thing the way that thing always does it, then the opposite thing has to do that thing the way it always does it. So the idea of the doctrine of election is God elects people Not through foreseen faith. It's not as though God looks down the corridor of time and sees those who receive Him and those who reject Him, and then He elects them on the basis of either their reception or rejection of Him. That's not a biblical doctrine. That's not what the doctrine of election means. Election is God's for-loving someone, for-loving them. That is, loving them before time even began. You remember Romans 9 says about the two twins in the womb they didn't do anything before their election. They didn't do anything good or bad. They were elected before such things. But what about this doctrine of reprobation then? Because people get really messed up because they say, look, my, my brain is tired thinking about this. I can't quote-unquote, wrap my mind about the idea that if there's a doctrine of election and there's a doctrine of reprobation, it has to be two equal rails on the railroad track going down the same direction. That have to be equal. And people say, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. What they'll say is, if you're telling me that the doctrine of divine election is a way of God showing the sinner that he was the one who opened their eyes and that he was the one who gave them the gift of faith in order to believe and repent of, of their sins and embrace the gospel, then you got to have the same thing on the other side. That God, and here's what they say, that God also chose the others to not be elect in such a way that it was God's choice and it didn't have anything to do with them. Because people say, I didn't do anything for my salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I provided that. I certainly did. And what God did is that he caused me to believe. And then they want to say on the other side, reprobation, and God caused me to go to hell. I didn't want to go to hell. I didn't want to go there. I tried so desperately to repent and believe. And, and, and this gift of faith and this gift of repentance that the Bible talks about, it just never came my way. And, and so I was earnestly trying, and, and I just wasn't one of the elect. I, I just wasn't one of them. And because of that, I can't be saved. So if, if the doctrine of election is true, the doctrine of reprobation has to be symmetrical with that. If God chooses some, He doesn't choose others, and that's why they have the fate that they have. And you know what the Bible says? And here's one of these texts. That's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches an asymmetrical view of the doctrine of divine election and reprobation. Why is it asymmetrical? It's because the doctrine of divine election means that if you and I go to heaven, it's nothing we did. But if somebody goes to hell, it's what they did not do. It's all on them. It's all of grace for us, right? And when they are condemned, it is because of what they chose to do. You say, how can you, how can you say this is asymmetrical? How can you say that the doctrine of divine election is that way and the doctrine of reprobation is that way? Because of this text and many others. What does it say? It says, and here it is. I mean, and you and I, you and I have to know this. This is, this is what it is. In verses 10 and 11, or 9 and 10, with all wicked deception verse 10 for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved notice what it doesn't say and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they were not elect see it doesn't say that does it, it doesn't throw it off onto some arbitrary whim of of god's supposed capricious doctrine of election that's why some people treat the doctrine of election they chide it, they criticize it, they laugh at it, they're, they're smug about it, but no passage says that. You're not in heaven because you are not one of the elect. The Bible doesn't say that. Bible doesn't teach that. Why are people in hell? Because they chose to be there. Why are people in heaven? It ain't because they chose to be there, it's because God elected them and granted them faith and repentance to believe. Even that's a gift. Now what about a Christian now? Now that you've been given the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, I want to go to heaven. I want to go there. I don't want to go to the other place. And that's why we call it all of grace. The doctrine of reprobation, here it is with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They refused it. They, they didn't want it. And you know what God says? I shall therefore leave you as you are. That's the doctrine of reprobation. I shall leave you the way you are. Could he save everyone? Of course he could. Could he save Adolf Hitler? Of course he could. He's choosing to allow a murderous man like that to receive the just deserts of his own choices. And that is just as fair. For us, we don't deserve divine grace. And in one sense, it's not fair. We didn't do anything to gain it or keep it. It's why we call it grace. And in the fairness, quote unquote, of God, He decided in eternity past to send you to a place you didn't deserve to go. Now, that, my friends, is greatly encouraging. So encouraging. You say, yes, but what about this? This is not encouraging. They refuse to love the truth and so, so be saved? That's not encouraging. Well, you see, that's not a problem with you and your doctrine of reprobation. That's a problem with you about your doctrine of anthropology, the doctrine of man. That's, that's the problem there. So you start with the wrong premise. The wrong premise is, I'm telling you, since we're all basically good people, we all ought to be on the train to heaven. You see, everybody's good in their little pea-picking heart anyway. They're good. They're good people. How many times have you seen that? Like someone does some kind of charitable deed. I was watching the golf game, and there was someone who did a deed by giving someone something that someone gave them the money to give someone something. And they came off the little ad for that, and they said, You know, that's such a good thing. He's such a good man. There's good in all of us. No, there isn't. We are sinners through and through. The only good that's in us is because of common goodness. Like, okay, it rained out today, and I'm an unbeliever, and I can say, that's a nice rain. That's pretty nice. Instead of, I don't care about rain. You care about rain? Rain's bad. It's always bad. Get out of my way. Get off my lawn. Well, there are a lot of people like that in the world too. But the people who think that there's good in everybody, therefore think everybody ought to get a break in the end. No matter how bad they were in the middle, well, as long as they did one deed, one deed that's good, they ought to be let in. And if God doesn't do that, he's somehow capricious and arbitrary and unfair. And the doctrine of reprobation says, and it will continue to say, and there's no way to work around this text, they refused to love the truth and so be saved. And because of that, they are doomed. They're doomed. And how so? Our last point, the judge, the judging and the judge. Verses 11 and 12. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, folks, this is a hard word. This is a hard word. There's there's nothing arts and flowers about this. No hearts, no flowers about this. This is a hard word. God sends them a strong delusion, and I can hear it. I can hear it right now. Who is that God you serve? That's not the God I serve. If you serve that kind of God, I'm out. I'm out of your life, and you're out of mine. Why? Because my God would never do that. My God would never send a strong delusion. And furthermore, so that they might believe what is false? You mean God is all about sending people a delusion so that they could believe in falsehood? No, sir. That's what people do. I mean, the Bible does say it here. It's, it's in the text. It's black words on a white page. It's, it's there. What's the point of what's there? How do, you, how do you answer such a person? Well, you answer it like this. This is a punishment text. This is a judgment text. This is a sovereign judgment text. This is a holy and righteous and sovereign God who sins as a part of His punishment, as a part of His judgment, a strong delusion. In other words, they are so, notice my phrase, hell-bent on refusing to love the truth so as to be saved, and God says at His appointed time, and only He can do it. We can't see into the human heart, but only God can, and there are coming times and times and half a time where when this is the judgment, God says, I'm omniscient. I know that they will never repent. I know that they will never believe. And because of their refusal to love the truth and because of their pleasure in wickedness, I will myself as a judgment against them bring a strong delusion so that they would believe continually what is false and they will forever believe that in hell forever. You say... I don't like that. I I just don't like that. I, I, I just, it just doesn't seem right. Here's the answer. God does a lot of things that you and I don't know all that he's doing and why. But it is right. It's a hard word, but it's also a true word. It's the example of what we don't like to think about, but it is true and it is here and it will be there on that day that God decides perfect, loving, gracious, sovereign, powerful, and exacting, he will decide. And when he decides, these people will get exactly what they deserve. Even if it means that God judges them even before they die, by bringing them a strong delusion so that they would believe what is false. Notice what the text says, in order that for the purpose that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth. Here's its opposite. Here's the opposite of what it means that you do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Don't tell me that God is not having the sovereign right to send people to their judgment day because they persisted in the pleasure of unrighteousness. Don't tell me that's, that's wrong. Don't tell me that's not right. It is because he decided it's their destiny. If God allows, listen to this, if God allows anybody who's a sinner, which means the whole world is included in this save jesus himself right if god lets anybody have one breath on this earth though they are in adam and vile and wretched themselves and we grow up and be further scientists and painters of all kinds of wickedness in the world we get so good at it if god lets anybody have another breath that is a part of his common benevolence in the world for anybody who's a sinner, to have any breaths. To have anybody riding in a car and they see this luscious meadow, or they see that sculpted skyline, or they see anything good, or they laugh, or they smell a pretty flower, or they see a baby born and they're so gratified for mom and dad. If there's one pleasure on the planet that they actually participate on, these God-haters, these Christ-rejecters, these people who refuse to love the truth and have pleasure in unrighteousness, if they have one good thing that's done to them in this world, God is really nice and really gracious and really benevolent toward them because they don't deserve even the one joke, the one laugh, the one flower, the one scene that's beautiful, They don't deserve any of that. Don't tell me about the problem of pain. I say it's actually the reverse. It's the problem of pleasure. Why is anybody having any pleasure at all in this world? Why? They don't deserve it. Nobody deserves any pleasure. I don't deserve any pleasure. And if God lets any unbeliever who's headed for hell to have any pleasure at all in this world, it's his common beneficence, benevolence. It's it's God being kind to those who don't deserve it. But then if he sends them to hell, that's where we object. Well, you let them see the beautiful sunrise, you let them have babies. You you let them have joy in the morning. You let them go to the beach and and be able to to surf. What are you doing now? And he says, do you object? And, of course, Romans 9, he says, do you have the right to tell the potter what kind of clay you'll be? Do you have any right to say, don't make me this way? I say, stop it right now. I'm in charge and you're not. I've just ungodded you. And when they get what they deserve, the Bible doesn't say, well, you're not elect. Sorry. We're we're really sorry about that. We really are. The elect people, we're going to say bye to you on the way, but it's the way it is. Nobody nobody acts like that. The most pride-crushing doctrine in all of Scripture is the doctrine of divine election. It crushes our pride. Nobody's going to say, I'm elect and you're not. Have a nice day. No, not at all. It humbles us because we know that we're supposed to go where they go. But if he sends them to where they're going, we cannot indict him. We cannot question him. Even if I don't understand all of this, I let God be God and I let me be me and I let him save me. When he does, how he does, and if he does, it is all to his praise. I take no credit in the matter. And that's what's happening in this text. Do you mean to tell me that Romans chapter 1, when it goes through that verse 18 to verse 32, that whole section there, and all of the wickedness of all of mankind, and it spews it all out, and then it says and God gave them over and God gave them over and God gave them over three times gave them up Is he arbitrary? Is he capricious in doing that? Did he did he give them to over to their devices, to their sin so that his their sin could could retch, uh, could could reach to the to the ultimate? Yes, he does. Yes, he does. He does that for some. He he lets them with the full reach of of giving them over to their own depravity until they've reached the end. And when they reach the end, this pleasure and unrighteousness, this refusal to love the truth, don't indict him if he sends a strong delusion so that they may believe, continue to believe what's false. That's a part of the judgment. That's a part of the punishment. And he's not arbitrary or capricious to do that. And by the way, when it says there, so that they may believe what is false. There's an article there in the Greek text, so that they may believe the lie. That's exactly what Romans 1 says, the lie. They worshiped the, creator, uh, worshiped the creature rather than the creator, and they bought the lie. The lie about that, that is a lie. So this is what happens here. And one other thing, verse 12. Don't miss that word all in order that all may be condemned. That's universal. This is not just the people who might have been trying to seduce the Thessalonians. This is not just some but not all. That's an all that means all, and there's all that that means right there in order that all may be condemned, because the truth is someone who does not believe the truth but has pleasure in righteousness as the characteristic aspect of their life will be condemned, and all will be condemned for such things. So it's all condemned for what they do, all condemned for what choices they've made, and for us, It's all of grace. It's all of grace. Oh, my friends, I guess as we close, we just ask the question, are you a part of all falsehood, all lies, or are you part of all truth? Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, this message is not my message the message of the bible it's the message of truth it's not the lie it's the truth and there are those who who sort of at times play around with the truth they may see it at its edges they may dance with it for a while they may come up against it every now and then but if they don't love the truth if they don't, if they don't live in the truth if they have pleasure in unrighteousness, then all of those who do are going to be condemned. Father, we, we have to tell the truth. Where would we be and what would we do and what kind of church would we have if we let people walk in here and just blithely tell them they can live any way they want? They can do whatever they want. We need to tell the truth, and the truth is that Jesus Christ's hand is extended to those who, but, who would but reach out for it. And once they do, and he saves them, they ask him how. And Jesus says, because you were chosen for the foundation of the world and we immediately fall upon our knees and say I'm so undeserving and then we live forever in gratitude serving the one who died on Calvary's tree for us and for those who are sent a strong delusion in this day the day of the Lord and who refuse to love the truth and those who are said to be perishing. It's because they refuse to believe in the truth and they have greater pleasure not in that but in unrighteousness. And so God says, I shall leave you as you are. And the reprobates even criticize him in hell, they continue to reject. In hell, they never want the truth. They never will want the truth. They will always and forever, even in an eternity without Jesus Christ, refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. And so they will have it. Father, Father may this bring us to a greater desire to reach out to loved ones and others with the truth of the gospel so that when this time is over, when this world comes against this terrible and awful day, all of those, even those who will go through this period and who will receive their lives back, even if their physical lives have been taken from them, we will all worship you with resurrected bodies saying hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you for choosing us, the undeserving. And may we live lives of gratitude and hope. And may we reach out to those who desperately need our help and our hand, the very hand of Christ with the gospel. Lord, thank you for redeeming us and for setting our feet on solid ground. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Amen and amen.